and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen. My guest today is Pamela Foey, professor at the Indiana University Maui School of Law and advisory board chair for the Indiana University Center for Law, Society, and Culture. We'll talk today about her article, Reducing the Wealth Gap Through Fintech Advances in Consumer Banking and Lending, co-authored with Natalie Martin, Associate Dean for Faculty Development at the University of New Mexico School of Law and the Frederick M. Hart Chair in Consumer and Clinical Law. This article is forthcoming in the University of Illinois Law Review. Welcome, Professor Foey. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. Um, it's my second time. I had a great time the first time and really looking forward to discussing um, this article with you. Uh, we're glad to have you back. So let's start with why you wrote this article and what's the main points within the article? So this article um, at its core is really a reaction to increasing public and political recognition that there's vast wealth and income disparities in the United States and that these disparities have been growing. Um, and for at least some time that there is a recognition that this needs to be addressed, both slowed and then stopped. So what the article does at its core first is bring together research about income um, and wealth inequality, and then recognizes that it you have to pull apart the threads of wealth inequality as well as income inequality, um, particularly as to the differences between communities of color and white communities in America. And so that's where the article proceeds from. It picks consumer banking and lending as the threads to focus on. Um, and we try to understand how banking and lending feed the wealth gap, which we overview income inequality to get to, because a lack of income is really important for people who are trying to meet their expenses that then bring them into um, a consumer credit and banking system that's not designed to help them. Right? And then once we do that, um, we focus in depth on three new, what we call, quote, advances in consumer banking and lending that are touted as being better for people to really interrogate the claim as to each product that is going to help deal with income gaps and wealth inequality. And ultimately, we conclude that the products likely are worse, meaning they're going to cost more and exacerbate the transfer of wealth to the already wealthy for the vast majority of Americans who use them. And so with that, we then identify and discuss what we call four tenants, crucial aspects to really changing how banking and lending go forth in this country. Um, and then back to, to why we're writing this, this truly we think is a moment in America's consciousness about wealth gaps, um, such that we can review and look at what leading candidates and members of Congress are proposing to tackle some of the debt strand of the wealth gap. And so that's sort of what we're doing in this article. So let's focus on uh, wealth, income, and debt inequality and why it matters. Right. Um, so you know, wealth inequality is the frame of the article, but what the article really tackles is income inequality and then debt inequality. And as we note in the article, the U.S. presently has the highest level of income inequality among countries 
that are the largest economies in the world. And it's so stark that America's top 10% of earners now make on average nine times as much income as the bottom 90%. Um, and you hear political candidates, particularly Bernie Sanders, um, touting some statistics about the top 1% and the 0.1% and the 0.001%. And the gap is just wider and wider as you look at the economic um, and social income tails. Uh, and in the article, we discuss two main inputs to income inequality, um, which link into uh, debt and credit issues. So first is the wage gap. Real wages have stagnated. People who make the most money have seen the most growth, whereas people who make the least money have seen the least growth. Um, and second is the ability of people to save and then make money off their savings. So investment income compounds the wage gap. The richest make more and more income every year. Um, and the connection to growing wealth inequality should be rather obvious with that description. Um, in fact, what we've seen in America over the past decades is a shrinking of the middle class. Right? The middle class has been howled out. So more families are living at or below the poverty line which destabilizes the economy, it destabilizes society, which again is being recognized. And I think it's important that it's being recognized by the people who hold the most wealth in this country. Um, and then debt inequality is very similar. It simply refers to broadly different access in banking and credit products in America um, and access based on how much you make where you live, and really importantly, regardless of how much you make or where you live, your race and your ethnicity. So in the article, as key examples, we focus on things like home loans, education loans, payday loans, right? the types of products that people use to both fund their daily lives, but also to live the American dream and how all of it is not set up equally for people in America. So what's the particular importance of this inequality for racial and ethnic minorities and other minorities as well? Okay, so the, the paper actually initially focused um, very heavily on race and ethnic differences uh, in lending. And you can see that if you pick up the paper throughout the paper, because the experiences of communities of color with income inequality and also debt inequality are really important for, for two main reasons. Um, the first is regardless of how well off they are, on average, they will face discrimination. And it's discrimination that continues today, despite the fact that there are laws in place in some circumstances that are meant to combat this discrimination. And the discrimination will decrease their income, um, and then also increase their cost of credit, which in turn decreases their ability to build wealth. And the second main reason we focus on it is that these communities have less wealth to begin with because of America's history of discrimination, um, which we bring out through a few examples in the article, focusing a lot on, on home loans. Um, and the income and debt inequality perpetuate the wealth gap in important ways for these communities. Right? 
So for example, um, in many areas in America where there are communities of colors, uh, people that live in those communities are at distinct disadvantages to access on foot traditional banks, simply because they're less present in those areas. So even if these communities want to physically be banked, they're less likely to be able to do so, which leads them to turn to other types of financing, which are more expensive, which then um, are all inputs to the wealth gap. Right? So we focus a lot on racial and ethnic minorities and communities of color and the disparate um, advantages or disadvantages they have in banking and credit to, to highlight how debt inequality feeds income inequality, which feeds into the wealth gap and how it all needs to be tackled simultaneously. In the article, uh, you talk about the disparate economy. What is it? And how has policy and law developed in history to create or worsen the disparate economy? Yeah, so the the phrase disparate economy, I both love and I have to credit Natalie Martin, my co-author, with bringing into the paper. Um, and the term simply refers to unequal distribution of income and economic um, opportunity in America. And I think there's two developments or non-developments in our law and policy that are worth highlighting um, to as examples of how policy have created this disparate economy. Um, the first is wages and wage stagnation in real dollar terms, which I teed up in introducing the article. The U.S. has not raised the minimum wage since 2007, right? and that was the decision to raise the minimum wage to $7.25 an hour, which took effect in July of 2009. So it's been over a decade at this point since the minimum wage has been raised. Um, so the minimum wage in America basically needs to double for families to be able to live on. And instead, people are working two or three jobs now, all low wage to barely scrape by. And every year, these families increasingly are less able to do so, which adds to the wage gap, which adds to their inability to save, and which creates the rapid moving apart of um, families in American society. The second policy choice worth highlighting is about education. Um, in this country. The United States has moved away from affordable, public-funded colleges and universities and comprehensive community colleges to a private education setup, including private two-year institutions that take the place of community colleges, uh, by and large. And private, both in terms of those institutions and then in terms of where people get money to fund their education. Right? Private student loans are rampant, um, particularly as to people who are going into private two-year institutions or other trade schools. This vastly increases the cost of education. And when it's more costly, those who need education the most to be able to climb the economic and social ladder can't actually attain education that is effective thereby adding to the disparate economy. Right, so I really like 
the phrase disparate economy because it it encapsulates what we're trying to discuss holistically in this paper. So let's talk about consumer credit products, particularly in banking and lending services, and how this contributes to the disparate economy. Yeah, perfect. Right. So this is the crux of the article. It takes us a while to get from wealth inequality into income inequality to debt inequality. But what we really wanted to do with this article is focus on the strand of, of credit, consumer credit and banking products that contributes to the wealth gap. And so the, for the purposes of the article, um, consumer credit is any banking and lending that people use for personal, family, and household purposes. Things that everyone uses uses every day. Um, and we think about it in terms of the definition of consumer in bankruptcy law, and also in the Uniform Commercial Code, Article 9, which applies to secured lending, right, which also applies to something like people's car loans. So for American families, um, that means products that are prevalent in their lives, home loans, auto loans, education loans, credit cards, including traditional credit cards and also store cards, um, which are akin to debit cards um, and bank accounts, particularly regarding potential fees that come with them. Um, and for families, that also means savings accounts, retirement accounts to the extent that people have the ability to put any money into retirement accounts, um, their checking accounts. And then for those families who don't have access to some or really all of these products, um, products in the alternative finance realm become important, which include things like payday loans, car title loans, rent to own, um, which is still a prevalent way to finance uh, big ticket items or even household furniture, um, and then check cashing outfits, which serve as a place for people to bank when they do not have access to or do not feel comfortable accessing traditional mainstream banks. So that's the, the universe of what we're talking about in this article. So particularly about home, student, and short-term loans, how is that affected by uh, wealth inequality, debt inequality, and the disparate economy. Yeah, perfect. Uh, in the article, we pick home student and short-term loans as three consumer credit products to highlight um, what we're talking about with the elements of debt inequality as it feeds into the wealth gap. So first, home loans. Um, I think it's universally known and agreed that American emphasizes and has emphasized home ownership for decades. Um, and this has created a need for people to finance the purchase of homes, which led to home loans, right? and also led to the rise of subprime home loans, which ended up being a key input into the Great Recession. Um, and while white households largely have recovered, in terms of money from the losses they um, saw during the Great Recession, communities of color have not for multiple reasons. First, they had more expensive loans. Um, and when those loans defaulted, it, the value of their homes dra dropped more drastically and rapidly. 
as well as the fact that homes and communities of colors simply are not worth as much and thereby don't appreciate as quickly simply because of where they are located. So high foreclosure rates fueled by subprime loans both eliminated most of the wealth gains um, of communities of colors and has continued to this day. On top of that, research shows that communities of color still face discrimination when taking out home mortgages. So it remains a problem and will continue to remain a problem um, until the, the discrimination that's embedded in the home loans is changed, as well as America's larger view of where people live and how much their homes are worth. Right? So that's home loans, you know, how you achieve the American dream, um, and also a place where you put most of your wealth if you're a typical American family. Second, we focus on student loans. Right? Student loans and education, uh, education part is part of the American dream. That's how families climb the economic and social ladder. And across racial and ethnic groups, higher education confers economic and social benefits. And that's been shown in research for years, Um, brings lower rates of employment and higher incomes. And yet the United States has witnessed the emergence and growth of private education institutions, privately funded Um, through student loans that are government-backed. And the cost of education has skyrocketed with these private institutions. And again, it's the communities of colors that are not getting the most out of their investment and, in fact, are being harmed the most. So they're the most likely to need a loan. They're the most likely to be sold a higher-cost loan. They're the most likely to default and thereby they're the most likely to not be able to use education to climb the economic ladder, Um, which then trickles down into being able to own a home and find a place to build your wealth, which then leads to the third batch of products that we discuss, which is what what we call short-term loans, which end up not being short-term. And this is the batch of products that respond to the fact that 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and nearly 40% of Americans can't cover a $400 emergency with cash savings or a credit card that they will be able to pay off within the next month before the interest rates hit. Americans simply need um, what are thought of as income smoothing products and which end up becoming Um, products that become traditional long-term loans because people need income, not just to smooth some changes in their income. Um, And they come with really high fees and really high interest rates, despite the fact that these are the most financially vulnerable families. Um, And the clearest, and this becomes the clearest example of the disparate economy. And as people turn to these short-term high-cost loans, that also impacts their ability to save money to get an education, save money to get a house, um, save money at all, exacerbating the wealth gap. Uh, It's also worth noting here um, that we include cash checking services 
with these alternative financial products, um, because these are the places that the underbanked and unbanked, meaning people that don't have access to traditional banking, um, use for their banking services. And yet they come with really hefty fees that again, feed into the ability to build wealth. And so we think these three examples are key examples of debt inequality in the society with how it feeds into the wealth gap and also how the American government has perpetuated and created um, a, a, loan, a system in which these products need to be used. So now can you talk about fintech innovations and what their proponents and opponents claim about them in regards to income, wealth, and debt inequality? Yes, absolutely. So this is the, I think, the most fun part of the paper, or at least it was the most fun part of the paper for me to write. Um, and we put the word fintech in the title simply because it seems cutting edge. Um, the The most novel part of the article is looking at these three innovations and trying to unpack claims of their proponents about how those products will somehow help deal with income inequality um, and, and be better products for the their customers. So the, the three products are payroll cards, um, early wage access programs, and new auto lending platforms that take place on apps on your phone. We start with payroll cards, which you might not think of as fintech um, because they're the oldest, but they still are a new-ish innovation. Uh, and going through payroll cards or discussing payroll cards is useful because you can think about how the innovation actually played out in terms of helping people who are low income. So payroll cards essentially are reloadable gift cards, similar to the ones that you might get at Target, Walmart, or the grocery store. They allow the recipient to spend whatever loaded amount is on it at any retailer that accepts MasterCard, Visa, or whatever company logo, right, banking logo is on that card. They're basically debit cards. Um, so instead of giving workers a paycheck, employers give them these cards. And then the employers say, you know, this saves check cashing fees. It allows workers to have this one card. That's where their money is. But on the flip side, um, the payroll cards bring heightened expenses and also a risk of loss for employees. Most importantly, putting aside the risk of loss, these cards come with usage fees. If you walk into Walmart or Target and you buy someone a gift card, a reloadable card, it comes with a $5 activation fee. Some employers pay these fees, most employers do not. So it again eats away at employees' wages and in fact, it seems like these come with fees that could eat away at wages even more than typical check cashing fees. They're not a solution. And on top of that, um, they discourage banking relationships that might reduce people's banking fees in the future. Right? So I think people understand when they cash their checks at a check cashing outfit that this is really expensive um, and it's not an ideal solution. 
the debit banking cards, payroll cards might mask that for people. Um, and I think it's true that it does mask that for people based on some emerging research. A much newer product um, is early wage access programs, which first appeared around 2014. And I want to use this opportunity to mention two new law review articles that were also just placed that look at these products in great detail and come to somewhat opposite conclusions about their usefulness and also where they sit vis-a-vis -vis banking and credit loss. So the first is Nikita Coutino's um, article. She's a visiting assistant professor at Duke Law. Her article is forthcoming in Northwestern Law Review. Um, and the second is Jim Hawking's new article. He's a professor at law at Houston Law, and he has an article forthcoming in Boston University Law Review. And my article with Natalie Martin, um, we cite and discuss those two articles rather heavily in, in setting out the basics of early wage access programs. Um, so the programs, in short, use online platforms to allow employees to access earned wages, but wages that are not paid prior to their usual pay dates. So if you think about how um, most American businesses work, particularly for hourly workers, is you get paid you know, once every two weeks. Right? So there's a period of time in which you've worked and your wages are sitting basically in your employer's um, bank account. So the programs claim to be revolutionary alternatives to payday loans and other fringe financing that people are already using to smooth their income. Right? And so the idea is employees will turn to these instead of payday loans um, to deal with shortfalls in income. And then instead of paying fees and interest on payday loans, um, the early wage access programs will, will charge people per use or monthly subscription, subscription fees. Nikita particularly um, does a great job at annualizing these fees to show that the program's probably are as expensive or possibly more expensive than payday loans. Um, and also shows that it discusses how there's really good reasons to think that people will treat them like payday loans. So instead of simply now using payday loans and taking out a two-week loan every two weeks, people will just move their loans like back two weeks in time and start using wage access programs um, to come up with the money they need to meet their daily expensive expenses, which will make people use them consistently, rolling them over and racking up fees. Um, but the wage access is even more concerning because these programs tie people to their employers, lock them into their current jobs, and may make them less likely to both move employers, but also be able to get um, the ability to get an education and then change their jobs um, considerably. So finally, we also discuss um, auto lending platforms, which there is almost no research about. They're even newer. Um, and the idea with them is that customers are invited to go shop for a car online, get a loan approval at the same time, they go test drive the car, and then they immediately buy it with their loan that they were approved for online. And the platforms come with fancy names, that are fair and flex drive 
um, promise access to cars without also long-term commitments and other costs. The problem with these platforms um, is that they come with worries about customers' fast decision-making and disincentive to shop around for loans, which could lead to higher prices. In the auto lending uh, context, there's also heightened concerns that the platforms are working for and with auto dealers, not the customers. Uh, so the auto dealers are paying for access to the programs and thereby customers are taking out um, more expensive loans. And Adam Leventon, another article I plug, I'll plug, um, who's a professor at Georgetown Law, has a new article about auto lenders called The Fast and the Furious, which talk about the problems with the entire car shopping and loan experience for consumers. So those are the three fintech innovations we tee up and then break down and tear down in the paper. So what are the policy solutions here? How can policymakers make sure to address wealth and debt gaps in this new, these new fintech innovations and in the traditional uh, banking and lending services sector in general? Yeah, right. So the, the policy solutions thus far um, haven't been that robust. And there's so few that I can easily rattle off a few off the top of my head. Um, on a smaller scale, Representative Katie Porter recently called for the FDIC to heighten its vigilance uh, in monetary online lenders that partner with banks uh, to police them as to the interest rates they're charging and whether they go above state usury caps. And then um, Representative Maxine Waters has said that she's going to advance a Veterans and Consumer Fair Credit Act, which will put a 36% limit on all payday loans. Um, what I think is more important here is that we are at a crucial moment where new policies and solutions can be advanced and actually taken seriously, which is our transition into, you know, what do these policies need to do, which is the, the last part of our article. So... You talk about four tenets for confronting debt inequality. What are they, and why did you choose each one? Great. So I'm going to do this really quickly because I think they're they're obvious, but it's useful to say what they are. So the first one we have is access to lower cost credit products, and this is what is animated animating the the two um, proposals that I just talked about: Representative Porter's and Representative Waters. And this just goes to the disparity in how much Americans pay for banking and credit that really needs to be addressed to, to deal with the disparate economy. So second is variety. People need choices and the ability to shop around on their terms, which we say includes in-person and online. And part of why people pay more is that they lack variety or that they think that it doesn't matter if they have variety because all the companies they go to are essentially working in the same realm and they're not going to get a different rate if they go somewhere else, which I think is true, particularly for something like auto loans. Most lenders work for their sellers, um, as we discussed with the new auto loan fintech platforms. 
the third goes to discrimination. Um, and we put a third for a reason because we think access and variety, true access and true variety are really important to also help combat discrimination. And when we say discrimination, we mean combating it from a holistic view, including how algorithms and big data and data-driven lending can perpetuate inequality and lead to discrimination. So we tee that up by saying that any proposal related to debt inequality has to think about online platforms, big data, and machine learning. And then our final tenet is not about credit. It goes back to banking. Um, debt and savings are two sides of the same coin. People need access, choice, um, and a system that identifies discrimination in consumer credit just as much as they need the same things in banking so that they can build savings. And in the past, banks were those places people could go to build their wealth. Over decades, though, many Americans have fallen outside of mainstream banking, and also American banks have repeatedly failed communities of color. So they have moved, the communities of color have moved away for legitimate reasons. And what we propose in the article is something that has been proposed before, which is public banking as a viable option um, or reviving the true public-private partnership of mainstream banks um, to address just the lack of banking access in this country. So you kind of hinted at this earlier, but can you talk a little bit about political proposals, particularly um, the congressional and presidential uh, candidates who have talked about uh, postal savings systems and other uh, financial and lending services that the government can do? Yes. So going back to this article in at its core, um, being a broad article that brings together a lot of research that's already out there in a comprehensive place. Um, I want to give a nod to Marisa Bartaran, who is a professor at UC Irvine um, and who has written extensively about postal saving systems um, in the U.S. in the past and how they can be brought back into the mainstream um, and used nowadays. Right? So in 1910, um, for those of you who don't know, President Taft created a postal saving system, which was wildly successful in getting people, particularly small farmers um, in middle America, to deposit money and begin to grow their wealth. At this point, postal banking could be established through the United States Postal Service, where there are thousands of locations across the country that people who otherwise can't access banks use on a daily, weekly basis. And the security and convenience of postal banks might encourage people to deposit small sums, which could help them grow their wealth over time. Just think about having more of a cushion of money, 500 bucks in the bank, $1,000 in the bank. When a family needed to smooth their income, um, for whatever necessary expense or emergency expense, instead of taking out a loan with a huge APR, they could go to the post office, take out some money, and cover their expense. Okay. Um, and this is 
it's not as radical an idea as it seems. In fact, um, the USPS Inspector General published a white paper in 2014 floating the idea. At the time, Senator Elizabeth Warren spoke publicly in favor of a postal bank. Um, Senator Kristen Gillibrand and Congresswoman Yvette Clark subsequently picked up the idea um, and sponsored legislation to to deal with this, which sort of leads into the moment we are at. Somewhat unique to this presidential election, Democratic candidates in the past month have proposed detailed policies to address economic, social, um, international, and really existential issues that are becoming a centerpiece of American life and of the political discourse. Almost every leading candidate, including those who withdraw early or have withdrawn since, recognized racial and ethnic wealth gaps as deep problems in America that we need to address if America is going to be an international leader. So in the paper, we end with a really brief discussion of the proposals of the four leading candidates as they stood coming into the first caucus, which was in Iowa. So we talk about what Senators Warren and Sanders have proposed, Vice President Biden and Mayor Buttigieg. And in brief, um, their proposals collectively include much of what we talk about in the paper. Uh, tackling issues related to banking and credit, the banking and credit system in the United States that are really antiquated, uh, such as payment technology, which brings the fin- our fintech angle into focus. Um, also capping consumer loan and credit card interest rates, capping ATM fees, establishing postal banking, right, which both Sen- Senators Warren and Sanders have proposed, passing laws against predatory lending um, and fighting big data discrimination, which is something that Mayor Buttigieg's um, website talked about in detail, passing a minimum wage, which almost everyone was in favor of, um, and reviving our government agencies, such as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Federal Trade Commission. So we end the paper by saying we need it all. Uh, And part of building of the paper was to say that we need it all because debt inequality as a contributor to wealth redistribution and the wealth gap is so extensive and so adaptable that programs and regulations have to attack it from multiple angles, which is why we talk about home loans and student loans and people going to check cashing outfits in the same paper. So we need forgiveness of student loans. Um, We need a a different student loan system. Um, We need creations of other programs that will help people buy houses. Um, We need interest rate caps. We need regulation of credit products, policing of big data, um, and also some sort of quasi-public bank to help people save money if this country truly is going to deal with the wealth gap. So as a final question, what would you like students, scholars, and policymakers to take away from this article? Yeah, so just to sum up really quickly, um, I think the, the main takeaway here 
is the moment that we are at. And that it was a moment to write an article that is like this article, which is very much a summary, a synthesis, bringing together and saying, look, look at what is going on in the realm of consumer credit and banking. It, the public's exposure to regular discussion about debt and credit inequality is rather unprecedented, right? particularly in modern history. And I think this marks a turning point in America's um, social and economic consciousnesses about what the harms of widening wealth and income gaps um, truly are. Right? And the place of the thread of consumer banking and debt um, in wealth inequality. And I think that's the key takeaway from this article, that issues with debt inequality, right? discrimination, lack of access to banking is one thread that feeds into the wealth gap. But it's a really thick thread. And thus, it needs to be addressed fully, not just with a few platforms coming in and saying, this is going to solve what's going on. Instead, now is the time to move forward with a broad set of comprehensive plans that are comprehensive with, um, with comprehensive as deals with America's access to banking and lending services in particular. Uh, and that's the article. Well, thank you very much, Professor Bowie, for coming on the podcast to talk about this very interesting and timely article. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope that was useful. And if anyone has any questions, I'm on Twitter, I'm on email, I would love to, to engage with this. And thank you so much. I live the life of a millionaire Spending my money now, did not care Can my friends, I for a good time Buying bootleg liquor, champagne and wine Lord, but I got busted and I feel slow Didn't have no money and no where to go This is the truth Lord, without a doubt Nobody wants you When you're down I mean Nobody wants you When you're down Lord, the other day I asked a man For my ring He 
told me, boy, the money he had spent. But I tried my best to try one or two. That's everything that I could do. Lord, nobody let me have one lousy dime. And I kept worrying now all the time. But I'm gonna tell you this is true. Lord, without a doubt, nobody wants you when you're down. Nobody wants you. Get my hands on a dollar again. I would hold it till that eagle grinned. I would try just for one little howl. Nobody knows me when I'm down and out. Lord, I try for another day to make my troubles in my own. I'm gonna tell you the truth Lord, without a doubt Nobody knows me when you're down I mean, nobody knows me when you're down 